turn in your Bibles to Genesis 24, Genesis chapter 24. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, it'll be on page 20. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and it is quite long, and so we're going to dive in straight away. <clears throat> but I would remind you that here at the Shore Harvest Church, we know the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. So what does that mean? Well, it means we need this book to know the way to eternal life, but we also need this book to know the way of this life as well. So I invite you now to listen as I read Genesis 24 with a few comments along the way. Beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And God said to his servant, the oldest, uh, I'm sorry, and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, probably Eliezer, whom we met earlier, we're not sure, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The thigh here is widely regarded as a euphemism for the genitals, the root of our words testify and testimony speak to that same solemnity that when the truth is on the line, man will swear by that which is incredibly precious to him. The point for us is that this is a most solemn thing, that Abraham is uh, uh, vowing his servant in the most serious way possible. Verse 5, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But... If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. This probably doesn't mean as much to us as it should. Rather than ten camels, picture a whole caravan of big black SUVs, tinted windows, tricked out, luxurious. What does that scream to us? A person of wealth and power and position and prestige. That's the point of the ten camels here. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he, this is the servant, said, O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden 
whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Rebecca has impressed Eliezer, if that is in fact the servant. Now it is the servant's turn to see if he can impress the young lady, not for himself, but on behalf of Abraham, on behalf of Isaac. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing half a shekel, and two bracelets from her arms, weighing ten gold shekels. We learn later the ring is so much smaller because it is a nose ring and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had, I'm sorry, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. We're going to learn later in the passage that Rebekah's father, Bethuel, is still alive. So we're not sure why her older brother Laban is playing the role of protector and head of household, playing the role of patriarch. Perhaps Bethuel is infirmed in some way, we don't know. But it's clear here and in later book parts of Genesis that Laban is the head of this household. Verse 31, Laban said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He, Laban, said, speak on. So at this point, the servant is going to retell the story, and he is going to add a few bits of information, all of which are intended to put this household at ease and to encourage Rebecca to come back with him. The story is at this point quite repetitious, but with some reason. Nevertheless, for the limits of our time, I'm going to kind of sum up the key things that Eliezer the servant addresses in the retelling, but not retell the whole thing ourselves. So, a couple of things. One, he will mention Sarah's old age at Isaac's birth. Why? Because they know how old Abraham is and Sarah is, and they must might be thinking, Rebecca might be thinking, oh, this guy, their son has got to be old and the servant is reassuring her he's not that much older than you. This is not a man who would be inappropriately old for you. He makes a point of telling uh, Rebecca and the household that Isaac is the sole heir of the wealth of Abraham already on display to them. Your daughter, if she comes back with me, will be well cared for in this world financially. Of course, if he's young and rich, that begs the question, what's wrong with him? Why do you have to travel this far to find him a wife? What's going on? And then we see the uh, part of this is one of the key reasons for the retelling of this. The servant makes clear, we had to come here to find a wife because our master Abraham insisted that a wife not be taken from among the people of the Canaanites. Oh, there would be many Canaanites happy to marry this young man, but that was not the will of Abraham. 
Um, finally, the servant recounts all these things at the well, in part to make his case to the family. Listen, this is not happenstance. Too many little things have happened too perfectly. This is the will of God. This is God's providence at work. This is a match made in heaven, the servant is arguing. And so we pick up in verse 50 where we see his retelling of events has had the desired effect on Rebekah's family. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come, this thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Given what we will learn about Laban later in Genesis, we find him to be a rather conniving sort of man. And it seems that probably this delaying technique is meant to get more gifts from Abraham's servant. Nevertheless, the servant persists and, insi and insists that he be granted leave. And in verse 30, 56, we see that. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Surely she's not going to want to leave straight away with a stranger. We'll get the delay we want. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. You know, it's interesting, the, the, the roles of her father, mother, and brother are more pronounced in this text than, than we might be accustomed to in our culture on these sorts of decisions, but it is worth noting, nevertheless, that the final decision did belong with Rebecca. It was her desire to go. 59, so they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Clearly, Rebecca is well beyond the age of needing a nurse. This is a kindness to her that as she goes to this strange place, she will have a friendly face with her, her lifelong caretaker. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. <clears throat> now, lest you think there is no romance in the Bible, listen closely to these next two verses, next few verses. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? Long before Hollywood had ever invented the love at first sight meeting, um, our Lord reveals such a story to us here. The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Basically affirming to Isaac that this woman is the one whom the Lord has chosen for him. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. That's symbolically significant. Rebekah is now the new matriarch of this family, taking the place of Sarah. Isaac brought her into the tent of, his, of Sarah, his mother, and he took her, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That closing sequence is not exactly what we would expect in our culture, where we think love should necessarily precede marriage. 
but it is an interesting thing. The Bible never commands us to marry the one we love, but it repeatedly and consistently teaches us to love the one to whom we are married. And while Hollywood loves the story of a couple who falls in love and gets married, God loves the story of the married couple in love when they die. Secondly, the sequence is not necessarily meant to serve any chronological purpose. It's a literary one. By leaving to last, Moses is emphasizing their love, emphasizing their love. Oh, that we would emphasize true love in our marriages as well. So as we consider this text, I would tell you that there are uh, many different ways that a sermon on this text could go. There is Abraham's growth in faith. Think about the man who once lied to Pharaoh to help God protect him. Think about the man who once slept with his servant girl to help God procure for him offspring. But what do we see here? He's a man with a plan, but you notice the difference in his plan this time? Did you catch there uh, in verse 8 where he says to his servant, but if she will not come with you, That's an important difference. Abraham has a plan, but this time he also is leaving room for God to work, as God will work. He's not going to bend the rules to help God. He's going to trust God. We could absolutely preach about Abraham's growth in faith. And speaking of Abraham letting God be God and be in control, providence would be an excellent theme for a sermon from this text. The whole passage screams providence. The way in which Eliezer finds Rebekah screams of providence. That Rebekah is able to get out from underneath Laban's devices is God at work behind the scenes. Even the manner in which the soon-to-be lover's eyes meet in the field is a master stroke of providence. The whole chapter assumes providence at every turn, and providence would be a wonderful sermon topic from this chapter. And toward what end is providence moving in this text? It's the fulfillment of promise, covenant faithfulness. Providence's work is the procurement of a covenant partner for the covenant heir and the procurement of a continuing line that would lead to the seed of the woman, Jesus of Nazareth. So promise is kept. Covenant faithfulness of God would be a wonderful sermon theme. But we have preached God's faithfulness from the account of Isaac's birth, and we have considered Abraham's faith when he took Isaac up up upon Mount Moriah. And God's providence will be an important theme in future texts. So this morning I've selected a, a different theme, the theme of marriage and the theme of a mate. Looking particularly at Rebecca as God's provision for a wife for Isaac, as the new matriarch for his people. I guess maybe deep inside I really am a romantic, but I think there's an important uh, 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 matter being portrayed to us here. And so this morning we're going to look at Rebecca, not solely because this is going to be a sermon to women or about women, but because she's the mate that becomes a picture of what God has in store or wants to have in store for his people. She is the mate, the match, made in heaven. With that said, let's go to our Lord in prayer and then consider this match made in heaven. Holy Spirit, come give insight to your servant and guidance to his words. Let all that is said be consistent with your message and fit for your people and work in the hearts of us, your people, that we might be truly and profitably changed by you through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Rebecca is a match made in heaven. Uh, To be sure, the text focuses on her. Um, Isaac's uh, inclusion is minimal right there at the end. But the principles and teachings will generally be applicable to both men and women, husbands and wives. And so this is not a sermon about uh, uh, about or for or to women, but rather to all of us. Nor is this a sermon about finding the right mate. I don't want you to tune out because you're sitting there going, well, I'm already married. I'm not like Isaac looking for a mate. 
So should the young people of our church listen to this and use it as guidance for finding a spouse? Absolutely. But if that is our exclusive bent, we will miss the bigger instruction from the Lord. I want each of us to listen to what we see here about being the right mate. Because after all, it wasn't Isaac who went and found her, but God who provided her for him. The lesson is the, the rightness of the mate God provides, and we ought to desire to be the right kind of mate. And if you're, uh, you know, each of us being married should absolutely desire to be the right kind of spouse. So we're going to give ear to God's word and pray that he will use it to make us in the eyes of our spouse, whether we have one now or might acquire one later, make us a match made in heaven. So with those, so, so what traits do we find in Rebecca? Well, the first one might actually unnerve a few of us. It's a little shocking. Stay with me. Don't tune out just once you hear the headline. You got to stay with it through the whole discussion. But what is the first thing we discover about this girl in verse 16? What is the servant, the first thing he sees and notices? The young woman was very attractive in appearance. Rebecca was good looking. Now, some of you are thinking, that's not very spiritual, Pastor. But we praise God for beauty of the sunset. We praise God for the beauty of a luna moth. We praise God for the beauty of the Grand Canyon. Why would we not praise God for attractiveness in our spouse? Those other things are not necessarily spiritual either, and yet it is appropriate to honor God in light of them. And so it is with physical attraction. Physical attraction, sexual desire, these are gifts from God. And in that sense, they are spiritual. Rebecca was very attractive. And unless we, unless we dismiss that too quickly, I would remind you that in Genesis, we have already seen the same thing said about the matriarch Sarah. Chapter 12, verse 11. Sarah is described as a woman beautiful in appearance. And a generation later, the daughter-in-law of Rebecca in Genesis 29, 17, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So if we're going to be dismissive of physical attraction, if we're going to say it's of no consequence, then why is it noted for all three of the matriarchs in Genesis? And what's more, Abraham's servant, did you see what he did? He took steps which, in part, were meant to curry the favor of Rebekah but they were steps to make her even more beautiful. He initially gives her just that initial gift of the ring and the bracelets at the well, $15,000 of jewelry in today's economy. Then back at the house, he bestows a whole bunch more on her, jewelry and clothes, things to make her beautiful. Now, lest you all slump down in your pew and think, well... That's it, I'm over, I'm done. I don't have a cover girl face or a supermodel's figure. So what am I supposed to do? Well, I think what you're supposed to do is note what the text doesn't say. It doesn't give specifics, does it? And in fact, the only specific given of any woman in Genesis that I'm aware of is Leah. And what Jacob didn't like about her. Something was wrong with her eyes. But in regard to the beauty of these women, no measurements are given. The text doesn't say if you're going to be a godly woman, if you're going to be a godly wife, you must have at least these measurements. Your weight must never exceed this number. That's not what it says. Rather, it says that Isaac was attractive to Rebekah. She went, wow, when she saw him in the field. And Rebekah was attractive, or we're going to find out later, to Isaac. The servant goes, uh, yeah, this is a girl uh, uh, my master's son is going to like. Okay, so three weeks ago, we're at Chrissy and Wyatt's wedding, and the bridesmaids are processing, and the music changed, indicating that the bride was about to come down. And so I'm turned around looking for the bride, as most were, when my own Rebecca elbows me and redirects me to the front. And I look up, and Wyatt is crying and my wife whispers in my ear, 
Now, that's what every bride wants to see. You see what happened? Tears of joy burst forth because he saw his bride, and she was beautiful to him. She was attractive to him. By the way, I'm appealing the husband's union to get you kicked out. You're making us all look bad. (laughs) This is not a text about some universal standard of attractiveness. It's about the gift God gives us that we are attracted to one another. That there is a sexual desire between a husband and a wife. So the lesson is not how you should spend a gazillion dollars on plastic surgery to fit some universal mold. The question is this, dear husbands, what is it that first attracted your wife to you? And are you continuing to make that attractive to her? Why would you not want your wife to be attracted to you? Why would you not want to do the work it takes to keep that spark alive? Was it the way you dress? Were you a sharp dresser? Then why are you sitting around the house in gym shorts and a muscle shirt, but without the muscles? They were attracted to one another, and that's a gift from God. So what else do we learn about this woman? Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Our author is describing the good qualities of this God-ordained, providence-provided mate, and one of the first things noted is her sexual purity. She was a virgin, a maiden, meaning unmarried, whom no man had known, meaning sexually chaste. Now, there is a fundamental covenantal question being addressed here. Any children born to Rebecca are definitely Isaac's. She's not returning to Canaan already pregnant. But there is another important matter. It's that of her integrity, of her sexual purity. Now, a discussion of sexual purity is fraught with even more potential pitfalls than a discussion of beauty. This was a nerve-wracking sermon to prepare. Let me be careful here. Let me be clear. First, I said at the top of this sermon that while Rebecca is the focal point, the principles drawn from the text are applicable to both men, women and men. This is not a teaching for women and men. You can go do whatever you want, sexually speaking. That is not at all the point of this. God forbid, put it out of your mind. Second, there may well be one of you or many of you listening to this sermon who is thinking, but that's not me. I'm not sexually pure. I'm single and not a virgin. Uh, uh, My parents don't even know about that. Perhaps you're thinking, I'm married, but I've had partners other than my spouse. And one of those even since I was married. So, am I on the ash heap of the Christian life, tossed out with so much garbage, is God done with me? The Apostle John reminds us, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. God is a purifying God. He can restore purity where we have let it slip away. God is not done with you because you have been impure sexually. The forgiveness of God is not about what has happened in the past, but what God has in store for you in the future and and, uh, present and future. Let the work of God, let the Spirit of God restore in you a heart for sexual purity. At the same time, as soon as we say that, we should also then say this. Just because the topic of sexual purity is difficult does not mean that we should pull back from it. We must teach what the Bible teaches. We must uphold and honor that which the Bible upholds and honors. 
The church of Jesus Christ must never be ashamed of the sexual purity the Bible extols and upholds. We must call good what God calls good. And God intended sexual intimacy to be a one and only thing. He designed it as the ultimate physical expression of oneness. He instructed that sex be kept within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. What our culture finds laughably archaic is still God's perfect plan. Rebecca was attractive, and she was sexually pure. We should eschew lust and perversion, and by God's grace, strive to present ourselves to our spouses in that same way. Third, this is one very hardworking young woman. Look at verses 19 and 20. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. You'd be amazed at the things you're not taught in seminary. You know, this seminary does not tell you, teach you how much a camel will drink. For all the Greek and Hebrew lessons and biblical counseling and systematic theology, I had to go look up what a camel drinks up to 30 gallons. An exhausted, spent camel will drink up to 30 gallons of water. 30 gallons times 10 camels, that one I can do, 300. Times 8 pounds per Carry the two. 2,400 pounds. 2,400 pounds over a ton of water. Plus the glass for the servant, so it's 2,401 pounds that she lugged from the well to the trough. And you notice the attitude of which she does it? She is clearly portrayed as a willing servant, happy to do the work. You know, Proverbs 31 extols the hardworking wife. One of the things we see in Rebecca is a willingness to jump to work. She does not shy away from the demands of the day. You see, life is hard. The thorns and thistles of the fall have complicated our existence. How much of a blessing, then, is it to have a spouse who is a co-worker? Together, as man and woman, as husband and wife, we are called to work hard to make our homes God-honoring places, to make our homes Christ-centered, to beat back as best we can in the power of the Spirit, the increasing influences of this fallen world. When, the, when both spouses are together willing to do the work necessary, it is a great blessing. So here we see Rebecca, the match made in heaven for Isaac. She's attractive, she's sexually pure, she's hardworking. And now look at verses 17 and 25, kind of put your finger on both. First, she offers this tired, travel-weary man a drink, up in verse 17. And then in 25, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Rebecca is kind and hospitable. Again, just like we saw in the beauty, let's be sure we pay attention to what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say, and Rebecca kept a perfect tent, always tidy, always dusty, without a speck of dirt, even on the dirt floor. Nor does it add, it was Rebecca's practice to have one family from the church over every Sunday after worship. That's not what we see here. But, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, what we do see is not somebody who went out of their way to be kind and hospitable, but rather someone who, when an opportunity for kindness and hospitality came across her path, she jumped on it. She immediately sought to be kind to her family and to the fellow people of God. A good Christian household ought to be the same. We ought to be quick to, to welcome brothers and sisters in the Lord, quick to be kind to them, quick to love them in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 64. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. And then note her response. 
So she took her veil and covered herself. We noted earlier that we ought to do what we can to be attractive to our spouse, but there is a right way and a wrong way to be attractive. So here is an important counterbalancing principle. Rebecca, the attractive one, was also modest. Rebecca, the attractive one, is also modest. Modesty is another difficult topic in our culture. Proponents of modesty can sometimes err by making it about the man's sin. Sisters, so the thinking goes, sisters, you have to be modest because your brother's in Christ Jesus. They can't control their lust. If you're not modest, you're going to cause a brother to fall into sin. Is the church supposed to help one another, bear one another's burdens? Yes. But it's not a woman's fault when a man lusts. That's not the point here of the teaching of modesty. It is the man's fault. It is his sin and his sin alone when he lusts. Another problem with this doctrine is in our culture, the minute you start talking about modesty, you're quickly labeled as a body shamer or a woman shamer. But shame is not the only reason to keep something hidden. So it's about that time of year where in the Shaw household we begin to acquire and accumulate Christmas gifts. Now, when the kids were little, do you imagine that we just brought those gifts home and let them lay around the house anywhere, out in the open? As we buy gifts for Pi and Garita, yes, you guys are going to get some nice gifts. As we buy gifts for Pi and Garita, what are we going to do? Are we just going to stick them under the tree with no wrapping? Shame is not the only reason we hide things. And in fact, the irony of this is that the joy and excitement of unwrapping actually makes the attractiveness more. Again, we were at the, the, the Kessler's wedding here a couple weeks ago, and how does it end? The service of the minister says to, uh, to them, you know, not pronounces them to be husband and wife, to be a man and wife, and then he says to Wyatt, you may kiss your bride, and what does he do? He lifts her veil to give her a kiss. What is that? It is a symbolic, it's a public symbol of an important reality. That which has been kept is now opened up. Intimacy is now going to begin to develop within this marriage. When we are immodest, we cheapen that. We give some of that away. We make it a little harder to enjoy the gift because it has become so routine. Before we leave behind this thought of modesty, I would like to touch on one thing that kind of is outside marriage per se and yet is relevant right now where we are in Maryland. You may be aware that over the last several years, there's been a raging debate in the politics of our state when it comes to our beloved beaches in Ocean City and other places as to how modesty should be handled there. There has been the oft-misapplied doctrine of equality under the law as a reason why men and women should be permitted to have the same degree of uh, undress in a public beach. Now, never mind the logical inconsistencies. I don't get why we're told sometimes to celebrate our differences, and other times we're told those differences shouldn't exist at all. Set that aside for a moment. I'm going to propose this, dear Christian. As salt on the earth, might we suggest an alternative? Rather, if, if, if the courts one day decide that the law of the state of undress has to apply equally to both men and women at the beach. Does it have to be equally immodest? Could we not argue that to keep the law, men should then put on more clothing? 
And you're saying to yourself, that's never going to fly politically, and I, you're probably right. But it's not the job of salt to cave in and give in, but to be a preservative. Perhaps, perhaps we should argue for greater modesty when that time comes. Rebecca, the, the providence-provided wife of, uh, 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 for Isaac, the kind of the archetype of the match made in heaven. She is an attractive, sexually pure, hardworking, hospitable, modest woman. Let's add another to our growing list. Commentators have long noted that Rebecca is the female Abraham. Rebecca is the female Abraham. Like Abraham, she is living in a faraway land. Like Abraham, she is called to leave that land and move to Canaan. And like Abraham, in verse 58, she says, I will go. Rebecca is a profound picture of bold faith. And I will testify with my own Rebecca that this is a phenomenal blessing in a marriage. A match made in heaven, a mate given by God who will obey God in faith, going where he says to go, doing what he says to do, seeking to be aligned with his will, even when we cannot see why, is a phenomenal blessing. Abraham has been a tremendous blessing to all those around him because of his great faith. Now Rebecca is going to be a blessing as well because of her bold faith. And Rebecca's faith is not a mere abstract notion of faith. You know, our culture is fond of just telling you, you just have to believe. If you just believe, it'll all work out. We're not told who or what to believe in. Self, culture, politics. But we are vaguely reassured that if we just believe, it'll all work out. That is not the message of this text. I have noted that God's provision of a match made in heaven for Isaac is a spouse who is attractive, who is pure, who is hardworking, hospitable, modest, and bold in faith. But until now, I have largely glossed over the single most important characteristic in this chapter, saving the most important for last. What in this chapter is the recurring theme? What was the emphasis of Abraham when he sent his servant out? What is the one quality that faithful Abraham has insisted upon above all others? Follow with me, starting at the top of the chapter, verses 2 through 4. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who was in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Move down to verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now, the servant doesn't know this yet, but Moses, the narrator, is pointing it out to his audience right at the top. Move down to verse 23. And the servant said, please tell me whose daughter you are. It's important to him. Verse 27. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Verse 37, my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take away from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and make a wife for my son. Finally, in verse 47, then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. Over and over and over and over and over again is the theme, the question of what family she comes out of. Was God's match for Isaac attractive, purity-loving, hardworking, hospitable, modest, bold in faith? Yes, 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 and yes. But above all of those things, covering over all of those things was a question of her religion. Now, we could go quickly wrong with this if we're not careful. You could say, Scott, it doesn't actually point to her religion. It would be easy to consider this in isolation and to draw every wrong conclusion. We might infer, as way too many have, that this teaches against interracial marriage. This is not about her religion, but about her ethnicity. 
That would be the easy, wrong conclusion. Abraham's concern is that Isaac find a wife among his own people, the argument goes. And that means that whites should only marry whites, blacks only blacks, etc., etc. I don't have time to fully address that view, but I will say this. The man who penned this account was married to a Cushite. Moses had a black wife. And when the issue came up, when his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam took issue with his black wife and complained about his black wife, God sided with Moses and against them. I can't fully address the flaws in that thinking. But given that Moses writes this account and has himself a black wife, it's hard to imagine that this is about race or ethnicity. So what is it about? What is the issue? What is Abraham's concern if it's not ethnicity? And this is kind of an example where our English Bibles can obscure things a little bit if we're not astute in our reading, but we'll get at it. Go back and look at verse 50. Look at verse 50. Then Laban, remember that's Rebekah's brother, and Bethuel, her father, answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. Lord, in all uppercase letters in your English Bible, is the traditional rendering of the proper name of God. This is the name Yahweh. So these two men, Laban and Bethuel, from Mesopotamia themselves, do not declare that this thing has come from Anu or from Marduk. They do not even give the generic word El for a god. Rather, they respond in the specificity of the name of the one true god. You see, up until now, we don't know what's been going on with Abraham's family. But we must, be, we must remind ourselves, God has repeatedly said to Abraham that he would bless others in and through and because of Abraham. And so it appears that Abraham knew what we have not known until this point, that though his family stayed behind in Haran, nevertheless, when he went to them and said, I'm leaving Ur because Yahweh has revealed himself to me and has called me to be his, they abandoned the false gods of Mesopotamia as well. And they have taken to following and believing in the one true God. They are worshipers of Yahweh. And there were none of those around in Canaan. That's the main reason Isaac's wife has to come from Abraham's family. This is a question of religion, of faith, of worship. Above all other things, above every other trait, the single most important thing, the thing repeated over and over and over and over and over again in this text, is that a match made in heaven is a match with a fellow Christian. How can a marriage be at its best if the two are not pulling in the same direction together? Now, as we said before, God can and does work in situations that are not this. Many people find themselves in marriages where there is inequality in the relationship with the Lord. And God continues and still does bless those households. But his design is that Christians be married to Christians. His purpose is that we would be bound to one another in the same faith. As difficult, as many difficulties as Abraham and Sarah have been through together, can you imagine how much worse things would have been if Sarah had been pining for Marduk rather than Yahweh? That marriage would have been in deep trouble. And so, friends, whether you are 21 looking excitedly toward your first spouse or 71 and wondering about getting married again, let God's provision of Rebecca reveal his desire for you as well. It is good to marry one to whom you are attracted. Your marriage will be blessed if he or she desires sexual purity. 
A godly home will benefit from a spouse who is hardworking, hospitable, modest, and bold in faith. Stepping out in obedience like Rebecca did. But at the very top of God's plan for married life is this. Marry a fellow believer in Jesus. Marry a brother or sister in Christ. Marry in the Lord. And then in your marriage, be in the Lord together. Finally, why is that so important? Well, Peter reminds us in Acts 2, it's important because the covenant is for you and your offspring. The securing of a wife for Isaac is about securing the future of the church. The best way for God to be the God of your children and grandchildren is for him to be the God of you and your spouse. Marriage is a blessing from God. Marriage that honors God is infinitely more so. Whether you are of childbearing age or grandchild-influencing age, whether you are looking uh, uh, for a spouse or already have a spouse, let your marriage set Jesus Christ before the world, before your friends, and before your family. Be married in the Lord. Be a spouse who is in the Lord. Be one who is encouraging your spouse to be in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us Rebecca and showing us how you chose her for Isaac, how you prepared her as a match made in heaven. And Lord, as we, some of us, consider the possibility of marriage, we ask that you would guide us to such a mate. And as those of us who are married, we ask that you would work in us that we would be such a mate. That we would be for our spouse a match made in heaven. And Lord, we seek this because you have revealed it as your will to us. And like Rebecca, we desire to walk in faith. To walk in obedience to your commands. To the glory of Jesus.